We need more people of color. We need more South Asians going into politics and international affairs. It's so important. And also, finally, just to raise your voice. I talked about reaching out to your member of Congress. Please do also get involved. Hello, and welcome to South Asian Stories, where we hear from South Asians around the world and uncover their identities, successes, failures, and most importantly, stories. I'm your host, Samir Desai. In this episode, I chat with Warda Khalid. Warda is a policy analyst, activist, and speaker on U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, as well as refugee immigration and Islam in America. She currently works on Capitol Hill as an APAICS Congressional Fellow and is the founder and president of Polygon Education Fund, a national civic education and advocacy organization dedicated to strengthening Muslim American engagement within Congress. Warda has significant experience advocating on refugee and immigration policies with faith-based NGOs and advising members of Congress, the White House, and the State Department on the Iran nuclear negotiations, as well as human rights issues pertaining to the Syrian and Israel-Palestine conflicts. Her UN efforts include consulting for the UN CTED on lone wolf terrorism, field work with the UNRWA in Jordan, as well as working with the UNDP and the permanent mission of the Organization of Islamic Corporation in New York. Warda is also a security fellow with the Truman National Security Project, American Muslim Civic Leadership Institute, as well as the US as the US USC Center for Religion and Civic Culture and a formal Scoville Fellow. Not only to that, Warda was recognized by ABC's Nightline as one of the country's top millennial activists. Her writing and commentary has been featured in outlets including the Washington Post, CNN, The Guardian, NPR, U.S. News, World and Report, Al Jazeera America, and Hartiz. She previously authored the Young American Muslim blog for the Houston Chronicle and hosted the show Reality Check on One Legacy Radio. So that's a lot. So in this conversation, we discuss how Warda changed careers from accounting to international affairs and never looked back. Two, what it's like to speak to a member of Congress personally and the process behind it, as well as the Warda's involvement in the Iran nuclear deal and being part of history. I truly enjoyed this conversation. It really made me evaluate my civic duty and how much I don't know about my state and local representatives. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Warda Khalid. Warda, welcome to South Asian Stories. We're so excited to have you. How are you doing? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm doing great. Well, as can be under uh, social distancing. Yeah. So this is a special interview and and because like the world is, I feel, you know, in a, in a state of turmoil and uh, we are eating our feelings away on both ends, but, but we're making it work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's accurate. So um, I'd love to start out a little bit about your background. Um, you know, after reading your bio and learning a lot more about you, um, it seems that you've come from a, a, a very interesting place to where you are now. So I definitely want to talk about that journey. But can you start, start at the beginning of where you grew up and what your childhood was like? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in the Houston, Texas area. Um, I am the oldest of five kids and uh, my parents are immigrants from Pakistan. And I grew up in a pretty suburban neighborhood that did not have a lot of diversity. We had enough in our school where there were like different faiths and there were some, you know, people from different ethnic backgrounds so that we knew we were not, you know, like completely living in a bubble, but it was also not super, super diverse. Um, we didn't have an MSA, a Muslim Student Association or an Asian Students Association or anything like that. It was very, um, it was just like a very regular school. I think there was maybe like one Christian club. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so it was, a, I had a pretty normal childhood. Um, I went to Texas A&M University for college. And that was actually, I think, where I was exposed more to other South Asians there. Um, and it was a really nice experience to be able to see people from a similar background. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I was very involved in school there and school clubs and things like that. 
Um, and so, yeah, from there I, I studied accounting and business. Uh, I also wrote for my school newspaper, um, called the battalion and I was an opinion columnist and a news writer there. Um, and then, yeah, I graduated and worked at Deloitte for three years as a CPA, a certified public accountant doing corporate tax returns. And how was that? It was very, <laughs> it was exactly how you would expect it to be. <laughs> sure, sure. It was very, I mean, it was a great experience. It was a, it, I am so glad that I started there because it really taught me about corporate efficiency and working with teams and managing people. And it has given me a lot of skills that have helped me in future jobs and as well as running my own nonprofit, which I do now. Um, but just the work itself for me was not enough um, to hold my interest in the way that other things like policy and current events were holding my interest. So I decided that I wanted to make a shift um, and changed careers and went into international affairs. So yeah, that's kind of how I started out. Yeah. So a, a few questions on that. International affairs, I guess, something that people think about, they do debate, they do other things um, that get them interested in world events. Was that something that was an interest f- for you growing up or how did you get into that? I wasn't really into international affairs per se as a kid. I mean, I think having immigrant parents, international affairs just comes up in regular conversation. So my dad is very big into history and really would enjoy talking about these things. And you would overhear uncles talking about politics and things like that. So you were always aware of it. You know, they're listening to a South Asian radio station that always would have news from abroad. So something I was exposed to and aware of. Um, but for me personally, it it didn't really click as much until the Iraq war and invasion in Afghanistan and President Obama's time. So I had just I was towards the end of college and our uh, Muslim Students Association did a, an event called uh, about Islamophobia. And it was the first time that I had actually heard about it um, and how I heard about it called that. And then. As Obama got elected, we were able to see a lot of um, Islamophobia towards him and people were very saying racist things about him and saying he was Arab and things like that, um, as if that was a bad thing. Yeah. And it just made me realize like how much our international affairs and our actions abroad were connected to how people were treated here at home um, with people who were either Muslim or appeared Muslim, like, you know, um, Sikhs, for instance, were becoming targets of hate crimes or anybody South Asian or Asian, anybody who looked foreign um, or could be Muslim was getting the brunt of this. So that was really what got me interested. And um, I started a a blog for the Houston Chronicle at that time called young American Muslim to kind of just write about my experiences and my takes on different current events and things like that. um, Just to kind of bridge that divide that I was seeing. Yeah. And that's really interesting because like, I remember when, you know, when uh, I was like 11 when September 11th happened and then this wave mm. of Islamophobia started to come across the U.S., which I didn't really understand because I was so young. Yeah. Islamophobia to you as a Muslim American, what was that like going through emotion-wise? Like, do you have any experiences that you can pinpoint that you're like, okay, this was weird or this was interesting or this changed my view on what was happening, um, you know, around you or in the U.S.? Yeah. So, like I said, I was kind of in a bubble at that time. My school was diverse enough so that nobody really looked at me. I also wasn't wearing the headscarf at that time, so nobody really looked at me and was like, oh, hey, you have something to do with September 11th. Like, I don't think anybody said that to me. The only time I realized that it was real was when my mom did wear the headscarf at the time, and some of our neighbors came over um, after it happened, and they brought her flowers, and they said, listen, you know, it's not really that safe out there if you want us to go do groceries for you you know, we're happy to help whatever errands you need. And that was when I first realized like, oh, like there's a problem here. Like some, something is happening. Yeah. Um, but again, I was young. I was in high school. I, I didn't really know what was going on. I didn't even know what Al Qaeda was. I didn't know what, I did not understand anything about what was happening with September 11th. Um, and so it was such a bubble where it, it, it took that kind of action for me to like, even just poke a hole in it. And <laughs> It wasn't until later in understanding Islamophobia and how it was entrenched in our in, in kind of our foreign policy um, that I was able to get a grasp on it. Yeah, and how did you develop your unique perspective? Because I think my issue with the media sometimes is like there's so many opinions. You're like, what do I actually believe, or mm. who can I use as a source to get 
the information that is closest to the truth. How do you, how do you, how did you develop your point of view and your perspective? Yeah, well, one important point of view that I had was growing up as an actual Muslim yeah. and being raised yeah. in a Muslim household. And that's what motivated me to start my blog because I was like, you know, our perspectives are not getting out there. People are defining our narratives for us. And that's not okay because they're getting it wrong. And that is why I started the blog was to be able to give my perspective because of what I knew was true for me. Um, and it was not what the media was saying or portraying with us as and even now you'll see like in movies and TV, there's still so much like Islamophobia there and people are just portraying people negatively. And with coronavirus right now, I guess the media has chosen now is the time to normalize Muslims because now you see pictures of women in hijab and wearing a mask. And, <laughs> right. You know, pictures of a Turkish mosque being clean where it says Trump's Europe ban, even though Turkey is not one of the countries on the ban. So it, it just manifests in so many different ways. And so I think for me personally, my blog was a way for me to be like, hey, I'm somebody who grew up Muslim. I grew up Texan. Yep. And this is what I think about the world and what I think about things. And I want you to hear it from me because otherwise other people are speaking for me and it's not accurate. Yeah. And when you were writing the blog, what were some of the topics that you were discussing? What was your favorite article that for you that you wrote that you're proud of? I wrote a lot of different articles. I was so proficient in that blog. I think I was writing like once or twice a week. Wow. I was a really good blogger. I was like <laughs> a dream blogger. Um, <laughs> I I remember writing stuff about the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, which is kind of a heavy topic, but I remember writing about it. And this was, I guess, like my first delve into policy analysis. Um, and I was just talking about how terrible it was and American citizens could be like, I think I think at the time it was like you could be detained without a lawyer or something like that. Um, it was some crazy provision I remember I was talking about. And I would also talk about like Ramadan. Like, what is that? What is like a, a day of fasting look like? So people could like ask questions and, and find out what that is. Um, I did blogs on like volunteering on Thanksgiving Day at um, George R. Brown Convention Center where we, we gave meals to the to people who needed food, to the hungry and to the homeless I wrote about the Kardashians and, and like kind of what the Islamic perspective, I think it was something about like dating and marriage that they had talked about. And I was like, Oh, this is so similar. So it was everything and anything that I just looked at um, policy, pop culture, personal religion, everything. Yeah. So I'm also curious to know, like, okay, you wrote this blog in college, right? That you obviously enjoyed it because you blogged once a week. That's impressive. Um, yeah. You after went... college. It was right after I graduated. Oh, sorry. College. Right after you graduated college. And then yeah. you went to do a CPA for a few years. Then you're like, you know yep. what? This is not working for me personally. Um, what happened next? And I'm more interested in what happened next. And then how did you tell your family that this is what I want to do? <laughs> Well, it kind of got to the point where I was doing so much outside of my CPA day job where I was like, okay, I have no free time to myself. Like I need to move this full time. So in addition to writing the blog, I was also volunteering with the local care chapter in Houston, which is the Council on American Islamic Relations or civil rights groups. I was volunteering with them. I was also doing like a Muslim youth camp. I was a counselor for them and then became an advisor for them. Um, I traveled to Washington DC with the Muslim public affairs council to learn about like policymaking and how people do that. So I was doing a lot. Um, and I started interviewing actually for other positions. And, um, I remember one of my interview interview questions was like, Oh, you're a CPA. Like, why do you want to like switch into this, like, you know, into this field? I think at that time it was like an interfaith job dealing with college students, um, because I was so involved in the interfaith community in Texas because I had a, in Houston, because I had a blog. Um, and so it was like, you know, I realized like how weird it, it maybe was or what a shift it was. And then I realized there was like a lot that I didn't know about the topic that I wanted to go into. Like if I wanted to go to school, if I wanted access to like internships or things like that, like for the United Nations is something that I was interested in. And, you know, I think they only had students intern for them. Um, other places I realized, you know, it, it would be good to get some knowledge. I didn't know I had no formal training on foreign policy. And so I thought, okay, if I want to learn about why these conflicts are happening, I, I need to take some time and study this. So, um, I did talk to my, my family about it and uh, my, my mom was supportive. My dad was, <laughs> <laughs> he was, 
he actually was supportive because he was like, okay, yeah, like if you want to go study this, like you can study this. Like he's very, he was pro education. Um, and so he was okay with that. And my first step was actually, um, the graduate programs that I was looking at, I noticed they all had a language requirement. And so I wanted to get a head start on that. And I wanted to learn Arabic because if you're dealing with Middle East affairs, Arabic is a good language to know. And so I, I went to actually Berkeley, California to take an Arabic intensive program. And I remember my dad was not too happy about that because he was like, why can't you learn Arabic in Houston? Like, I don't understand why you have to go all the way to California. Little did he know that I was going to go to Jordan after I graduated to learn more Arabic. But <laughs> at that time, he was like, why are you? So it was it, it was like a process. And then after that, I was like, OK, I need to apply to grad school now. And so it was just like, OK. Um, and thank, I mean, thankfully, he was supportive enough uh, where it was unlike, no, you can't go. It was just kind of like, oh, OK. But um, yeah, I mean, now he's still like, why? When are you going to come back from DC? Like, you've had your fun there. Now, yeah, like, let's right. <laughs> like do something and come back to Houston and do real estate or something. And I'm like, no, <laughs> why would I? Why would I do that? So yeah, it's been a process for them for sure. And I, I joke that it keeps me humble. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it, I think it, it just takes it takes a lot of um, self-motivation on your part. And then it also helps that the rest of my family is, is pretty supportive as well. So it's, it, it helped me kind of get through that. Yeah. And I think that tension between uh, individual dreams and family obligations is something we hear from guests again and again. And I think it's part of the, <laughs> this just the South Asian American or, or whatever niche you're part of right now, because like people want to do these cool things, but then they're pulled back i wouldn't say pull back yeah. but you're pulled in another direction based on what yes. you want to do and, and balancing that i think is the hardest part but i want to hear more of yeah. so you decided to take um arabic in this intensive training what was the highlight mm -hmm. and the low light of doing that like what was the best and worst part of doing that um it was such an incredible experience because i was in it was in berkeley california which is beautiful and sure. it was my first time living in california so it was just like it was so awesome to be living there. And I was, you know, a lot of our students, we actually lived in dorms. I had a roommate um, and it was just a cool like school experience, but you're with a bunch of people that are like together all the time studying this language. Um, it was also Ramadan at the time. So we would be like fasting together, uh, got to go to San Francisco. So it was, it was a really fun, amazing life experience too, because I was learning so much at one time, uh, you eat, breathe and sleep Arabic and you are with these students all the time. So you build these lifelong relationships. I'm still friends with a lot of the people that I was in class with. And so it, it was just an awesome experience. It turned out really well and, uh, really motivated me to continue learning the language and, um, and how intensives worked for me because, for me, like I'm doing so many things when I'm in school. I took one semester when I did get to grad school and it just wasn't the same as being kind of in an like, immersive program. So it was, I really enjoyed it. For sure. And, and, and tell us about your time in Jordan. What was that like? Yes. So after I graduated from my second master's at Columbia starting international affairs, I went to Jordan to do more Arabic studies. Um, and I also got to intern for the UN there, um, UNRWA. I got to go to some uh, health health camps or some of their refugee camps and help with their in a health clinic there. And um, trying, they were trying to do studies about their sanitary conditions and how people could help um, with that. And so I got to do that as well as study the Arabic. And again, it was a lot of American students that came over to Jordan to kind of get this immersive experience. And that was really fun because... Um, you know, Jordan was so like, a lot of times people think like the Middle East that women can't travel there or they don't have freedom. But Jordan was a really safe place where I could get in a cab by myself, go downtown, meet my friends for dinner. And it was also Ramadan there as well. So like all the American students would hang out in the evenings and go eat. And I had a lot more fun that time around because I was less stressed about my grades. <laughs> and it was more <laughs> about like immersing myself in the culture, but also studying and getting to volunteer. So... It was awesome. Was there any story or experience that really stood out for you? Be like, wow, this is this is where I am and this is now exactly what I want to do? Um, yeah, I think helping out at that clinic uh, was really, really amazing. I also got to help. Um, it was actually one year after the 2014 Gaza War. And so I got to meet with some volunteers there that were 
helping give aid to Gazans or, or Palestinians that were in Jordan. Um, so I got to see how that worked. And then through that organization, I went and visited a hospital where people from the 2014 Gaza war were actually getting treatment. And we took toys for the kids. And it was it was just such a it was a powerful experience to go and see these people that were getting you know multiple surgeries a week because they had all the shrapnel inside of them from becoming victim to this war. And it just put a really like human element to it. It was no, it wasn't a year after. Sorry, it was it was r- during the gu- during the war because I went oh, wow. I visited a year after my work. But yeah, this was summer 2014, so it was happening. And it was, so I, I visited that. And then I also, um, in the evenings when we would have prayers during Ramadan, uh, a lot of people, you know, who live in Jordan are, are Palestinian or have Palestinian family, uh, family still in Palestine. And so when they would do the evening prayers, they would pray for the people that are, you know, in these conditions or under attack or are in harm's way. So it was very... It was such a like incredible time to be there and to be so close to what was happening and then watching like what the news stories were saying and then hearing what we we would see on the ground and visiting the people there. So it was very like it was very powerful. Yeah, I can imagine. And what happened after your experience in Jordan? What did you do next? So after Jordan, I came back to Houston and I did some consulting work on counterterrorism a little for a few months in Houston and then I got a fellowship to move to DC and that's when I moved for the first time here and started working at a Quaker lobby doing Middle East policy. Tell us about that. What what has been the highlights of working there? Um, this was like my dream job that I was so <laughs> lucky to get, you know, right after I graduated from, from Columbia and it was about finding non-military solutions to conflicts in the Middle East and so we were working on issues like the war in Syria, obviously Israel-Palestine, which was so recent, and also the Iran nuclear deal. And because this organization focused on Congress, my job was to help educate Congress on why the Iran nuclear deal was positive and why they should support it. And I remember like going to Capitol Hill and meeting with members of Congress and staff and working with advocates to teach them how to talk about the deal and give them facts whenever people would ask them questions about it. And it was such a historical time to be there because the deal did go through and it was like the first time that anything like this happened and we got to work with the White House on it as well. So it was just, uh, it was like being part of history. So yeah. I'm so fortunate that I got to do it. And interestingly enough, like I, it wasn't even originally in my portfolio to do that. It was um, just, it just so happened that the program assistant who was working on it was transferring to another position in the organization. And so my supervisor said, hey, do you want to help on this project? And I was like, okay, well, Iran seems to be in the news and it's Middle East related. So sure, even though I know nothing about nuclear power, but <laughs> um, I didn't need to. And it was, it worked out really well. And then also in that same fellowship, I got to go to Israel, Palestine again for, um, to do some like follow-up, uh, so to do some work with like NGOs on the ground, meeting with people on both sides and seeing, you know, what the condition was, how was the rebuilding of houses going after the Gaza war, how are people doing, what about mental health, meeting with people who were working in these clinics. Um, so it was a really profound experience to be able to go so soon after I had been before and uh, see like the situation firsthand. So it was it was an amazing experience. Wow. Yeah, that that sounds incredible. And especially like your one of your first roles right out of grad school, man, that must have been very empowering, exciting for you. Yes. Yeah, it was so exciting. And I felt so grateful that I I had done that. And I honestly, I was like, so happy that I was not sitting in Houston doing accounting anymore. Sure, sure. I would never have been able to get these incredible experiences. Um, Not that I knock any accountants, my friends are still accountants, I still have my CPA license, like, I don't knock accountants at all. Right. Um, my friends still ask me tax questions. Um, but, you know, it, I was glad that it, it was worth it for me to kind of leave that all behind because it, I was stepped into this amazing possibility that I never could have imagined. Yeah. So let's just role play, right? Let's say I'm a congressman, right? And you are coming up to me and I want to learn more about the Iran nuclear deal. 
for someone like me who like who is like you know pretty high up in the U.S. politics and you know doing a lot of things, how would you approach me as the congressman or congresswoman if I wanted to learn more? If I was meeting you for the first time, like what would you say to me? Yeah. So the nice thing about members of Congress is they have staff that handle a lot of their learning and a lot of their like ah, got initial information. So I would have probably already had a conversation with your staff, probably multiple conversations with your staff to make sure that they understood what was happening. And they would have probably already briefed you a little bit on the issue before I came in. But once I came in, um, you know, usually what they we would do is we would bring advocates with us. So they want to know, like, who in their district cares about the issue? What are people what are their constituents saying about it? And that's really one of the most important things is because these constituents are the ones that are electing and reelecting them. So they want to make sure that they are understanding what they say. So we, I would probably bring a group of constituents with me and then they would share why they wanted the congressperson to support the Iran nuclear deal, why it was important for world peace and security, why it was important for our relationships in the Middle East, um, why it was good as far as making sure that or helping to prevent a nuclear war. Um, and so they would talk about these things and talk about the concessions that Iranians had made. And then as a person of Congress, a member of Congress, you could ask follow-up questions and ask about any specifics, or you could ask about what people on the ground are saying. Um, and so it's, it would be my job to help provide that information. And if I didn't have the information, go get it from the experts and then bring it back to you and your staff. Got it. So it would Got be, it. Um, yeah, it's like a multi-pronged meeting. It, it, you know, they have their staff do a lot, and even now working on the Hill, I can see that every day is, you know, it's it's a lot of work by the staff to get their members prepared and yeah. up to speed on things. I'd like to also know, you know, for people who are listening, a lot of people um, have this image of international affairs and policy in their head. You know, for someone who's actually done it, like, what were the biggest myths that were busted for you that went, because you came from so, totally something that it was totally different to this for someone who wants to break into it or doesn't know what it's exactly like. Can you dispel some of the myths that you had that were, were true, were untrue and some of the things that you learned that were like, wow, I didn't know this about this industry or this type of work. Yeah. I think one thing that I didn't realize was how undiverse it is <laughs> or not diverse. I don't know what the proper term is, but it was, I, I would have thought that diverse people would be working in the State Department, that they would be working in these advocacy organizations. And I, I didn't see that when I got here. Um, I think there was a study that just came out from the state saying the State Department was like woefully, um, you know, unrepresentative, like of the diversity of Americans. And I see, I, I actually participated in this um, fellowship called Foreign Policy Interrupted, when I got here, and that was about getting more women miked and bylined. And so it's not that women and people of color aren't doing these things. It's a lot of times they're not receiving attention for their work or they're not being called into these higher upper level management positions or these higher places of influence where they can make a difference. I mean, even under the Obama administration, there's a story that came out that I think it was like at the National Security Council, the women would support each other during meetings by saying, you know, I want to echo what my colleague just said, because men would drown them out or, you know, they weren't getting or maybe men would be mansplaining or taking their ideas. And so not only was it just like a lack of diversity and ethnicity, but also like women just were not um, were not getting these positions. So it was I was really actually fortunate when I got to the Quaker lobby because it was a mostly women staff mm -hmm. and at the Iran deal meetings, there was a lot of women in there, but however, on other issues, I wasn't seeing that same diversity. And so I think that has, that was really like, I would go into meetings. I was the only person wearing hijab there. I was often the only Muslim there. I was mm -hmm. often the only person of color there. And it was just mind boggling to me that it was, you know, 2015 and we were still dealing with these things and, and that people of color and, we're not getting access to these places. Now, partially it's our community's fault. You know, South Asians are not pushing their kids to go into politics and For pushing sure. their kids to go into international affairs. And that's why any chance I get, I'm always like, we have enough doctors and engineers, like branch out. Yeah. Um, but unless that's what you really, what your heart calls you to do, great, go for it. But if it's your parent forcing you, please don't do it. You're doing the community a disservice because it makes it that much harder for us to make good policy decisions 
And, you know, it is a well-known fact in Washington that these white old males are making a lot of these decisions. They do not reflect the diversity of the countries where they're making these decisions toward. They don't have an understanding of what's happening on the ground. We also have this awful security clearance process that is stopping people of color and people from minority backgrounds from getting access and influence into these places because, well, if you have relatives that live abroad, you must have foreign influence. Like, it's really ridiculous. Um, and, and I think that I just didn't realize how bad it was until I got here. Yeah. And, you know, that was 2015. Now it's 2020. What are the biggest things, the changes that you've seen happen in the last five years, positive and negative? I'm seeing a lot more conversations around diversity here mm-hmm. and for organizations making an effort to welcome more diverse members. So one organization that I'm a part of here is Truman National Security Council, which brings people from the military branch together, policy people, and then political folks together um, to kind of talk about what's happening. And I was pleasantly surprised to see that, you know, they were trying to be diverse and they reached out to me. How do we make, get more diverse? And so many different organizations have reached out to me about how do we make our membership more diverse and, you know, the answer is that it's not that easy to do that because you need people in the pipeline to get them. I can only tell you how to reach people that are already kind of in these areas, right, or are already in D.C. or already working kind of on these things. So it's it's nice to see that they are interested in getting more diverse because they understand how beneficial it is to have diverse membership. However, like it doesn't solve this bigger structural problem that is getting people actually in these educational fields, in these professional fields in the first place. So I'm happy that there's improvement. I think there is more of a recognition that, you know, it's not okay that the only people that are on TV are old white men talking about these international affairs issues, that there are women that are competent and expert in these issues, and we should have more of them speaking. And it's just, it's going to be a cultural shift that I think will take time. And then as far as like the security clearance, I think people are realizing how awful it is, but I don't know how long it'll be until they, until they change that kind of process. So it takes people that are diverse. I mean, I have friends that are in the foreign service that are of of color and they've been so helpful for me um, and just serving as mentors for me. And I think that the more that we can do that and help each other, the better. And I'm, I'm just seeing more concerted efforts to do that. So I'm, I'm really pleased about that. That's great. And so you're seeing positive momentum and, and you know, and I, this is a big year because it's an election year. So I think yes. there is, a, from my vantage point, a lot of engagement and people who are either, you know, not happy with the current state of affairs in, in, the, in the government and want to make some changes. So, you know, I think this will be a very interesting year to see how the tides shift um, as people get yeah. more engaged based on what they saw the last four years or, you know, wherever their uh, political alignments are. Yeah, and they've already been getting engaged. It's uh, over the last four years. It's been incredible. I've seen my friends even from Houston yeah. getting involved in campaigns and it's it's really empowering and I'm so happy and I have friends that are from minority backgrounds, South Asian backgrounds, actually, that are in all these different campaigns, not just sticking with one candidate. And that's great because we should be in different campaigns. We should be in different backgrounds because our community is very diverse. I mean, we may be all from a similar like ethnic or religious background, but we all have different political leanings and different priorities. And it's great that that is being reflected. Yeah. So that is a perfect transition to talk to talk to us about your nonprofit, Polygon. Yes. Um, read a, a little bit about it, and I was very impressed with uh, your mission of you know trying to engage um, with your representatives and train how Muslims and 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 allies get to you know talk to your yes. representatives more candidly yeah. and and more efficiently. Can you talk through the genesis of it and and uh, how you developed the the nonprofit and where you guys are today? Yeah, for sure. So before I started working at the Quaker lobby, I made a decision. This was like in late 2014 that I wanted to start something similar for the Muslim community because the Quakers, I don't know if your listeners know about it, but they're a very small Christian group that um, a lot of them are based. It actually started out in Pennsylvania. So if you go there, you can see Quaker meeting houses and they have them in D.C. as well. But it's a smaller Christian group of less than 75,000 people in the United States, and they actually have immense lobbying power on Capitol Hill. I mean, I showed you what I just told you about the amazing work they did on the Iran nuclear deal. And 
I, I mean, of course I hadn't gone through the experience yet, but I just thought like, wow, the fact that this faith group of less than 75,000 people is, is advocating and educating on all of these different issues ranging from climate change to criminal justice reform, to foreign policy, to national security, to civil rights was amazing. And I wanted to start something similar for my community, which ranges anywhere from three to 8 million people in the U S nobody really knows how many there are, but I, I was like there, we need to be tapping into that power. And instead of just doing photo ops with members of Congress and then just letting them do whatever they want, you know, actually, put their money where their mouth is and have them create policies or work on policy change that our community wants. Um, And so that was kind of the idea for it. And so I started working at the Quaker lobby and was getting my firsthand experience there. And at the same time I was interviewing people, doing informational interviews with other kind of policy people in our community. Like why hasn't something like this happened before? I was, I was trying to understand what it would take for it to be successful And people were saying that, you know, we have tried before and it didn't work or other people were giving me the advice. Oh, just wait until the end of your career. Like life is long. You can wait to start that and focus on your other career right now. And I was just like, why? This should have started like 100 years ago. I I can't wait anymore. (laughs) And so um, I actually started training people on my own on how to engage with their members of Congress and that training, those training materials actually became whenever we launched, um, our like the material that we would base our trainings on. So we started with webinars and then we started training people all across the country. And so, yeah, so towards the end of 2015, I I put a team of people together to help kind of bring this vision to life. And then I actually went home for a year um, in 2016, which was like a a weird year to be home because I was like writing about the elections. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. um, I was I was actually waiting for um, to start another position in in D.C. And so after my fellowship, I I went back. So it gave me some time to work on the nonprofit and make all the incorporation papers and create the website and all that. And so um, it was it was a lot of work on the back end. And we officially launched in January of 2017, which was right after Trump was inaugurated or right before Trump got inaugurated. Um, so the community was very like ready for it. Right. They were like, wow, this is great timing. And I'm so happy you're doing this. And I was like, yeah, this has been in the work for years, but I'm glad you uh, recognize the value of it right now. Um, so it was kind of opportune that the community understood the need for it right then. Um, and since then we've trained over like 5,000 Muslims across the United States. Is it 5,000 or 10,000? I can't remember now. We've tra- trained ca- quite a few and we do, um, trainings on, um, on congressional, congressional advocacy 101. And then we have a 2.0 version that's more advanced and we teach it on conferences as well. Um, our, you know, our organization participates in, in visits on Capitol Hill on issues, of course, around Islamophobia and, and national uh, civil rights, but also we do a lot regarding domestic human needs, hunger, poverty, these are all issues that impact our community. Um, and and these are and we've also made a concerted effort not to do foreign policy right now. And I don't know if we will. But for now, I think one misconception that people have is that people of immigrant backgrounds or Muslims, um, that they just care about foreign policy. And that's not true. They do care about issues in general that Americans in general of all backgrounds care about. And mm-hmm. so our organization has very, been very cognizant about that and it has made a concerted effort to focus more on domestic issues. Um, so working on the Muslim travel ban has been a very big thing that we've been working on in the past. And then um, this coronavirus package, we've been following it very closely, making sure people get medical relief and financial relief um, that for the hardships they're facing now. So, you know, we're still going and, and um, training people and educating people and encouraging them to get engaged with action alerts and, information that we share on our on our mailing list and it's it's a really great way for people to get involved past the ballot box i mean obviously you need to vote first but then once you vote this is kind of like the next step yeah and i think that is amazing where the fact that you are organizing a community that has just been distrustful sometimes of um, politics and you know, say like, oh, that's somebody else's problem. Like, let them figure it out. We'll focus on ourselves and our immediate family. I think just changing the narrative on that is just so impressive. And I think that is work that needs to be done. And to have people like you just pushing it, um, even if the, the, our community is like, no, we don't need this right now. Focus on your career. Right. I think is, is is very, (laughs) um, you know, very, very impressive and very cool that you're doing. I'd love to know, like, you know, 
you said you developed a lot of training materials for people to help engage with their representatives. What's yes. the number one piece of advice that you tell people in that training, the top three pieces of advice? Number one, know who your members of Congress are. A lot <laughs> of people you'd be surprised do not know. And so I always ask this in the training is like, do you know who your senators are? Do you know who your actual representative from your district is? And you'd be surprised that a lot of people often don't know. So number one is just like getting informed. And I mean, it's fine. I understand why. Like we don't learn it in school about how important this is or how to do this. I mean, maybe we'll hear about voting. And even in my government affairs class, which was like my favorite class in high school. So I should have known I was going to do something like this, but I didn't. Um, it was my favorite class. But I don't think we talked personally about like, who your representative is that much. Maybe we did in eighth grade um, social studies, but um, yeah, like we just plan to learn about the branches of government and things like that, but not kind of how it personally related to us. So I think just having information is important. So I tell people that like sign up for your member of Congress's mailing list, like find out what they're doing. And then another thing that we teach people is like, when is Congress actually in session? So that's something that a lot of people don't know is that, members of Congress divide their time between their home districts and then also their um, being in the DC office. And so when they're in their home districts, it's called recess. And that's a really good time to visit your member and you can get a chance to have one-on-one meetings with them. I mean, you can in DC as well, but it's a lot harder because members are always in meetings and voting. And so it's, it's much busier. So we send out action alerts telling people about when recess is, what are some sample issues that you can talk about? Um, So I think that's really, really important. And then um, I think just like being engaged, I tell people to put the phone number of their member of Congress on speed dial. If you're sitting in traffic, which we do a lot when we're in Houston or Dallas or other cities like that, um, that's a great time to like call your representative and tell them what you think about an issue and, you know, just being engaged that way and always making sure to tell them your opinion on things, write them, call them. It's really important just to be engaged so that people know that you are a constituent and you are active and they do have to answer to you. Yeah, that's fascinating to me because um, I don't know any of those things. And I, I I was like thinking to myself, like, man, I need to look those up today and, and get yeah, a sense I of mean, it. Yeah, I mean, mostly a lot of people don't. I'm not surprised. It's You would think that this is like very basic skills, but our community is like – it hasn't done it to that extent where everybody can like name their members like right away and – it's going to take time till we get there. Yeah. So um, can you, you, to your second point, know when Congress is in recess and when it's not, can you yes. give an overview of when that is for people listening? Yeah. So a really big time that people, members of Congress are in their home district is in August. So that's called August recess. So okay. the whole month of August, they're at home and that's a really good time to be trying to meet with them when they're in the district. Um, but other than that, usually when there's like a federal holiday, like President's Day or July 4th or something like that, a lot of times there's like a week long time where members go back to the district and that's considered a recess as well. So if you go on uh, congress.gov, I believe, is it congress.gov? Or if you go to house.gov and senate.gov, you can find the calendar on there where it says, um, when members of Congress are in their home districts, which is recess, and then when they're actually on Capitol Hill in D.C. And generally during the week, if it's an in-session week, members of Congress um, fly out to their districts on Thursday night. And then that way they spend all of Friday in their district. And then they come back on Monday morning, Monday afternoon, and then voting starts at like 6.30 p.m. on Monday night. So generally, if it's an in-session week, um that those are their hours. That's awesome. That's actually very, very helpful. And to yeah. your third point, um, you know, when you're in traffic, you know, I live in Dallas, we're in traffic a lot to call your yeah. representative. Like, I didn't know you could do that. Like, yes. like, can you like, what's the best way to get in touch with your um, representative? If you just, like, what do you talk about? Like, how does that happen? Cause that just, that just blew my mind. Like, I didn't know I could call my, district person just about hey what's up i feel x about x yeah well i hate to break your bu- buster bubble but it's not the member that's going to be answering the phone it's yeah, usually sure. like a staff assistant but yes you can you can call and you just it's it can be as simple as hi my name is i'm a constituent that lives in x district uh, you know i am the president of this 
healthcare association that has 5,000 doctors under me, uh, whatever it is to like identify yourself. Yeah. And then you can say, I'm calling because I think this coronavirus package needs to be passed and I'm really urging you to vote yes on it. And that's it. The call will take a minute and they'll say, thank you for calling and they'll write it down. And then at the end of the week or at the beginning of the week, actually on Monday when we have staff meetings, um, that staff assistant tells the member of Congress, like you received this many calls on this, they were telling you this way. And then sometimes the member will ask, okay, well, was there a certain group that was pushing this or is there a reason why we got a spike in calls? And so they really are interested in knowing what their constituents think and, and that they are approving of how they vote on things. Um, because at the end of the day, they're, these members of Congress work for you. And that's what I tell people is like, they work for you. They were hired by you, like hold them accountable to their yeah, job. For sure. So you absolutely can call them and tell them what you think and they record it and we'll, we'll get the message. Yeah, that's awesome. Because like, I, I hear you when you say like, uh, I've heard many times like, oh, your Congress people are, uh, work for you and they should be, you know, representing the, the interests of your yeah. constituents. But you forget like, you should ask them what you want, right? The only way they yes. know is if you ask them, just like anything else in you. Yeah. You have to ask for it to get it. So, and I think, especially people in our community forget you need to ask these people because they're yes. in your districts and your, you know, your states and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, they'll donate to them and they'll do hold fancy fundraisers in their houses and give them so much money. And then once they get voted in, they don't do anything. They don't ask for anything. And yeah. I'm like, why? Yeah. Why did you put all this effort in just to get a photo with them? Big whoop. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's not that cool that you have a, a photo with a member of Congress that you don't ask anything of or you don't push them to do something in the right way. Yeah, no, that's amazing. That is a, amazing <laughs> piece of advice. Um, what the, I would love to know um, what's next for you. Can you give us a peek under the hood of what you're excited about to work on this year or right now that's in your hopper that you can you can tell all our listeners about? Uh, so much. So much is going on. So right now <laughs> I'm currently working on the Hill and – um, I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping to stay there for a, for a little bit and, and kind of get to work on different issues there. Um, I've been really fortunate in the office that I'm on to get to work on a lot of things like the No Ban Act, which has been an amazing thing, uh, trying to repeal the Muslim travel ban and get rid of ethnic and religious discrimination in our uh, border policies that Trump that Trump implemented. Um, so that has been really cool to work on. I'm excited to see that finally like come to a vote. It was actually about to come to a vote a week or two ago. And then coronavirus kind of blew up and then they decided that no, we need to focus on coronavirus. And so that vote got delayed. So mm. I'm really excited about that. And I hope that, um, that does come to a vote because that'll be a very major victory for our communities. Um, unfortunately that bill is not bipartisan. So no Republican members have signed on to it, which is kind of weird. And I think that's something, if you have a Republican member of Congress, you should definitely reach out to them and ask them why they haven't supported it. Um, because, you know, discrimination should not be a partisan issue. So that's something that I'm really interested in working on. Um, I'm, I'm still interested in getting more involved on like the foreign policy front. Uh, there's so much going on in like Yemen and Syria just entered its 10th year of conflict, I believe. Is it 10th year? It feels like longer. I need to look that up. Um, I think it was the 10th or 13th year or something like that. Those numbers are hanging in my mind. Um, I did a lot of, I actually used to do refugee and immigration advocacy work at my last position. And so refugees are an issue that are near and dear to my heart. So still, you know, keeping tabs on that situation and how are we treating refugees? The U.S., I don't know if your listeners know, this has been steadily decreasing the number of refugees that are allowed into the country. Um, basically, you have the Stephen Miller types trying to end the refugee resettlement program altogether, which is awful because, um, you know, the, the U.S. used to be a leader in refugee resettlement, and now we have closed our doors to refugees. And so, you know, for instance, <clears throat> we are fighting or helping, you know, fight in Yemen, supporting Saudi bombing there, and then we've blocked Yemen Yemenese refugee Yemeni refugees from coming to the U.S. And so, it's really a terrible situation that we need to rectify immediately. So, mm -hmm. I'm still, you know, working and keeping tabs on that. Um, Israel Palestine is an issue that I is a, that I watch very closely as well in the Middle East. Um, and then obviously looking at hate, hate crimes and terrorism and how that impacts the community here, people of color here. And why the administration is not 
treating white supremacy and nationalism as a serious threat that it is. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Those are a lot of things to work on. How yes. <laughs> how do you prioritize or how do you choose, um, uh, I need to work on this right now? Is it based on immediacy? Is it based on, you know, something that's going on with you, the, the, the hill? Like, how do you choose among the sea of things that you're interested in, in giving your perspective and point of view and your, and your yeah. work on? Like, how do you choose? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with the immediacy of the situation, for sure. Um, One issue that I've been working on on the Hill is the deportation or the sorry, the detention of South Asian migrants at the southern border. And you have all these people from India coming that are going on hunger strike because even though they're seeking asylum, they're being detained in these deplorable conditions. And then at the same time when they go on hunger strike, they're going to, they're force fed and which is like torturous for them. And so I'm getting to work on that through my office, which I'm really grateful for. So that is something that is, it's not only immediate because people are literally like suffering and dying as a result of this kind of treatment, but also because that is an issue that the member of Congress that I work for is interested in. So that helps me prioritize. And it's like, okay, yes, I can actually like work on this issue. Um, but outside of work, yeah, it's about immediacy, but also like, what are people forgetting about? What do they need to remember? Like, what are some things that have a media hook? Um, like for instance, there was a a reporter, an Israeli reporter wrote something about how Israel was going to be quarantining, quarantining for 14 days and that their borders were going to be closed. And, you know, this would affect their economy, which is true. It's an awful situation. But at the same time, like I quoted that tweet and I was like, well, you know, if you think 14 days is bad, imagine 13 years of your borders being blocked as um, Israel has been doing to Gaza, right? So Gaza has an air, sea, land blockade. Their economy has gone uh, gone south. The, a lot of people are unemployed. They don't have access to clean water and electricity. And so that was just like a very poignant way to like bring that issue back up because 2020 is the year that the United Nations said that Gaza is going to be unlivable and it is, it absolutely is. And so that was like a good way to bring that up. So everything has to have a media hook. Uh, unfortunately, that's yeah. just the way our world is with our 24 hour news cycle, right. but also like, what is immediate? What are people caring about? How can we tie this into our own situation, especially with coronavirus happening and people realizing that, wow, a lot of people live like this all the time where they don't have access to resources or they don't have freedom of movement. Um, and so, yeah, that kind of determines kind of what's happening or if there is a, you know, one year ago was the shooting at the New Zealand mosques. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I marked the one year anniversary by upping an article that I had written at that time about interfaith communities are having to bear a lot of the burden of these shootings, and that they could absolutely happen again, because the administration is not taking this threat seriously. Um, So it's, it's, it's a combination of things. Um, But yeah, just trying to do as much as I can in places that all make an impact. Well, hey, that more power to you. That that stuff is extremely important. And, and and to your point about the media news cycle, like I feel finding your way through the noise is probably the hardest part. Even though the issue bears, um, you know, viewership and and and, and consideration. So um, I applaud you for keeping the fighting the good fight to do that because I know how Thank hard you. it is to, to to get through all the noise and sometimes yeah. all the infamous information, which sometimes I struggle with too. Like what is real and what is yes. not. Yes, for sure. I saw a story today about Russia releasing lions to get people who weren't quarantined. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Like, like, um, yeah. I hope this is yeah right <laughs> that's funny oh my um so at the last part of our interview i'd love to switch to our rapid fire questions and these are questions we ask all our guests on the show and we've gotten some very interesting engaging and exciting answers um, because of the wide variety of things that people use and see so one of my first question to you is is there an item that you have bought recently that has dramatically improved your life it could Ooh, be big, big or small. It can be a service or it can be a thing. Hmm. Okay, let me think. Um, I'm not good at these rapid fire questions. We can go. We <laughs> can go to an item that has dramatically improved my life. I'm looking uh, around. I give you an example. A lot of people have said okay. um, um, AirPods have been game changers for them. A lot of people have said like, oh, a meditation routine or something that has helped me with my physical or mental health. Oh, okay. 
so this is one I, I it's a service I guess it's a training I did, I'm doing this emotional intelligence leadership training called next level trainings and so I started it around January okay um and that has dramatically changed my life and this kind of the things that we've been talking about like prioritizing issues and you know balancing everything that was something that I was looking for in that for sure and so I think that has definitely like dramatically improved kind of the way that I think about things and understanding like all the different domains of my life and like my goals that I have for them. I think that has helped a lot in prioritizing. So yes, that I think that would be my answer for that. That's so cool. How did you discover it? One of my friends told me about it and she was just, I just noticed like how much of a change I was noticing in her. She was like becoming a very go-getter on areas of life she wanted to improve on And then it just so happened that the fellowship that I'm doing right now wanted us to take a training or go to a conference. And so I was like, well, this sounds like an interesting training that I could do. And it has been, I've signed up for like all three parts of it. And now I'm telling people about it. And they they just launched an online version because of coronavirus. Um, And so I'm telling people it's like, you should sign up. It's life changing. And it just really just dramatically improves your relationships and how you think about things, how you handle work, how you handle your personal life. So I love it. It was a happy accident. Next level training. Is that the name of it? Yeah. Next level trainings. And the online program is called shift. So if you go to nextleveltrainings.com slash shift. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. And we'll make sure we include that. Yeah. Cool. Um, the next question I have is when you think of a South Asian person you look up to in your field, who would you say comes to mind and why? I would definitely say Ro Khanna, Congressman Ro Khanna from California. He has been such a leader on foreign policy and human rights and humanitarian rights, uh, dealing with, you know, for instance, like the Saudi bombing campaign in Yemen that we were, the United States was supporting to dealing with that issue, like on Kashmir to dealing with, um, uh, Syria. There's just so much national security, FISA, foreign intelligence. Uh, he's just been doing such a great job on leading on those things. And I really, really admire that he centers human rights in his work. Um, and he's just been so effective in, moving legislation where it never has before. I mean, Congress voted both on the House side and the Senate side to end the U.S. support for the bombing in Yemen. And that was historic. Like, I would not have imagined something like that ever happening. And to see that, you know, the South Asian American was kind of leading this. I mean, of course, Trump vetoed it, which is another story. I mean, that's out of his control. But um, to see that he accomplished something like that, on the house side was amazing and I applaud him for a a lot. Have you ever had a chance to meet him or interact with him? Uh, I've seen him at some meetings that I've been to and just kind of said hello, but I haven't like talked to him in in person. It's kind of awkward when you're, you see these people that you see on the news all the time, like walking around, like it's no big deal. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) It's like a celebrity sighting. (laughs) Yeah. So because like I work there now, I can't really go up to them and be like, oh my gosh, I'm a huge fan. Can I have your autograph? It's right. Like, oh, right. hey, bro. Like, right. I'm from Texas. So I saw Joaquin Castro like walk into an elevator as I was walking out. And of course, I want to say to him like, I saw your TikTok with Julian. It was awesome. <laughs> but instead, I'm like, oh, hello. And he's like, hello. And then that's it. So we can't. I can't really fangirl as much as I want to there. <laughs> That's funny. I love that. Um, okay, next question is, um, what is a movie or book that has had the most impact on you? I would say the autobiography of Malcolm X had a big impact on me and um, and just understanding kind of how the African-American community has moved with Islam and nation of Islam and how that kind of transpired in America. Um, The African-American, like 25% of Muslims in the U S are African-American and many of them started in nation of Islam and then uh, moved over to like Sunni, I guess more Orthodox Islam. Um, And it has been fascinating to see the work that they did for civil rights, for human rights in the United States uh, you know, uh, criminal justice reform. And so reading that autobiography kind of tells a story through Malcolm X and then 
kind of the amazing spiritual experience that he had when he went to pilgrimage in Mecca, which all Muslims are um, required to do if they can, if they can afford it once in their lives and how he's talking about meeting blonde hair, blue eyed Muslims and all these different types of people that he never would have imagined. Mm -hmm. It's, it was really beautiful and powerful to kind of see the equality that Islam teaches and how he was able to bring that back to the United States and understand that a lot of our racial issues and the tensions that we have in the United States could be solved by these same principles that the faith teaches. So I think it's a really powerful book. Yeah. Now, was that book recommended to you or how did you again discover it? I think I had just been hearing about it a lot. And so I just decided Mm -hmm. one day to read it and I wish I had read it earlier, honestly, but yeah, I read it as an adult. Um, and yeah, just kind of came across like that. Awesome. Great, great choice. I have not uh, looked at it, but I'll definitely check it out. Oh, you should check it out. Yeah. Powerful stuff for sure. Cool. Um, last few questions is, um, if you had to give an up and coming South Asian person who is interested in policy, interested in international affairs, what is the first step you would may ask them to take or how would, what, what advice would you give them and why? I would say good job on not trying to be an account or a, a doctor or an engineer <laughs> or even a lawyer or an accountant or safe field like that. Yeah. Like props to you. Yeah. And now that you have figured that out, what is it exactly that you're interested in? Right. Cause this international affairs is a very broad field. You have nuclear security, you have middle East, you have South Asia or Asia, you've got Europe, like there's, you know, South America, so many different areas that you could be interested in. Um, what is the way in which you want to serve or work? Like, do you want to do research? Do you want to be an advocate? Do you want to, um, you know, work on policy inside the government? What do you want to do? So I think understanding what it is that you're most interested in is also important and like how you want to function and maybe you want to do a combination and that's fine. And you can do internships in different places to see what you like. Um, but yeah, I would recommend those things first, figuring out what you're interested in. What are the topic areas? What kind of work do you want to do? And also understand that there's no linear path in this field. I mean, even me, I'm doing, I never thought I'd be working on Capitol Hill. I I advocated outside, but I always thought I was going to go work at the State Department right away or some other agency. I had no plans, but being open is really important because everybody, if you talk to in this field, does, most people do not have a very linear path. And it's kind of a like, what opportunities are available? Some people jump on political campaigns or presidential campaigns, and then they get appointed at the white house or they get jobs somewhere in the local government by running local campaigns. Uh, so just what are you open to? What are you interested in? What is the kind of issue that you want to work on? And then being open to any opportunity that comes your way is something that I would highly recommend. That's amazing. Thank you for that. That is great advice. And and just any, from a tactical point of view, would you say, would you recommend any specific resources or courses or any education things that people can look into if they're interested in pursuing this further? Um, I'm trying to think of resources. I don't think there's any one particular resource. I think just being informed about the topics in the issue area that you care about by like reading a lot. I read a lot of articles, news articles, opinion articles to understand people's viewpoints, understand what's happening on the ground. Um, So I think that is important. If you have a chance to kind of work in that field uh, abroad, that is great. Uh, Even if it's just language study or if it's an internship, kind of like what I did, that can give you a firsthand perspective um, of being able to see what's happening so that you can kind of separate what's what you're seeing in the media versus reality. Um, so I would say definitely do that as much as you can. And then, yeah, I think just being informed and then trying to research the institutions that you're interested in and seeing what kind of history they have, who are the people that fund them? Do they have a particular bias or slant? Just being very informed before you go into a situation or before you interview somewhere. That's great. Thank you. Okay, last question. Sure. Um, do you have any final ask for the audience? Anything you'd like to leave them with before we close? I would say that if you are interested in this field, definitely look up information. We need more people of color. We need more South Asians going into politics and international affairs. It's so important. And also finally, just to raise your voice. I talked about reaching out to your member of Congress. Please do also get involved with your local elections, city council, state house uh, or state Senate. 
Those are also places that make policy. A lot of education policies are made at the state level. So if you want textbooks that are not, you know, uh, bigoted or spreading weird messages or completely take out certain fates altogether, pay attention to those things. Get involved. Let's get outside of our comfortable bubbles and, you know, start being engaged and, and making a difference in the place that we live. I love it. I love it. And guys, for everyone listening, this is the year 2020. We have a lot on on, on stake. And yes. so if, if not this year, then when, right? So exactly. Um, um, I love that advice. Warda, thank you so much for your, all your insight. And again, for all your work you've done, you've done. I've learned a lot in this just hour. And I have a lot of homework I want to do just to get more uh, prepared and, and, and more, uh, you know, have a better understanding of the of the world around me. So thank you again. Yeah, thanks so much for having having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. And yeah, I'm looking forward to hopefully more of us being in this field and having these conversations. Awesome. Thank you. Hey guys, it's Samir again. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories on South Asians around the world, please check out SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com and subscribe to our email list. That's SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com. Thanks a lot and see you next time.